Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the privilege of speaking with Jeff Lowenfels. Jeff is the author of the award-winning books, Teeming with Microbes, The Organic Gardener's Guide to the Soil Food Web, Teeming with Nutrients, The Organic Gardener's Guide to Optimizing Plant Nutrition, and Teeming with Fungi, The Organic Grower's Guide to Mycorrhizae. Jeff has become a leader in the organic gardening and sustainability movement as a result of these best-selling books. His Teeming with Microbes Guide to the Soil Food Web has been hailed as one of the most important gardening books in the last 25 years. His talks have converted tens of thousands of gardeners at venues throughout North and South America to follow this path of organic gardening. And he actually hosted Alaska Public Television's most popular show, Alaska Gardens with Jeff Lowenfels. But probably most importantly for Jeff, he is the founder of the national program, Plant a Row for the Hungry. This program is active in all 50 states and Canada and has resulted in millions of pounds of garden produce being donated to feed the hungry every year. Jeff is as passionate about plant a row as he is about organics. I'm excited to learn how we can all partner with microbes, nutrients, and fungi in the soil to grow more abundant gardens. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. I'm hardly worthy given some of the past guests that you've had. I mean, my goodness gracious, what a jackpot. Woo. I'm honored that you've uh, reviewed the show and seen oh. some of our past guests. And yeah, yeah. Definitely for me, you're one of the biggest ones because I am an avid home gardener. And Good. some of your work around organic gardening has really made these complicated concepts of the soil food web, how all these things work together, and made it really approachable. And, and that's what I love about your work. Before we dive into this massive body of work. Before you even go there, I mean, I, I want to tell you why it's so easy to read my stuff. Because one of the things that I do in life is I'm a garden columnist. In fact, I call myself America's longest running garden columnist because I've been right. doing a column without missing a week. It's going to be 45 years. Oh, my God. Wow. Oh, my goodness gracious. But anyway, um, that's a lot of columns. But when you when you learn how to write a garden column or get you know get used to writing a garden column it's 500 to 600 words and that's just it and so when you look at the books that i've written and in fact a lot of books that, that, that my publisher timber press publishes the words are separated by what i call black letter sentences so you've got a, a heading then you know 500 words and then another <laughs> heading and then 500 words. And so what you're really reading when you read my books are thousands of individual garden columns. Right. Because there are five or 600 words per little idea there. So anyway, I just, I pass that on. And if anybody picks the books up, you know, it's pretty easy to just sort of, you know, you just as long as you finish the section, you'll be okay. <laughs> and that's probably why they're such great reference works too, is they're these powerful little articles you can keep coming back to. That's how I use it. Uh, but I'm curious how you became this titan of organic gardening, how you became the longest running garden columnist. I mean, I know your background, I believe, is a lawyer. So how did you get yeah. your hands in the dirt? Well, you know, uh, it goes way further back than that. My father and my grandfather were really big time gardeners. And in fact, another story, perhaps, but they are indirectly and maybe even directly responsible for the establishment of miracle Grow which wow. is not organic, of course. Uh, right. And, and uh, long story, but anyway, they, the guy who started miracle Grow hated working at the company that my father and grandfather owned. 
And he ended up starting Miracle Grow, I think, as a direct result of, <laughs> of just hating doing what he was doing. So my family was always into gardening, big time. And we were a Miracle Grow family because of the association with Horace Hagedorn, the founder of Miracle Grow. And then one day, my father started to get Rodale Press's magazine. I think back then it was called Organic Farming and Gardening. Mm. And my father would leave it around in the bathroom, of course, so that the sons would read it. And we lived on an eight-acre farm in a residential community, and we grew our food, most of it. And it wow. was really quite something. And, and we became more and more and more organic with the one exception. My father continued to respect miracle Grow, but we stopped spraying and, you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah, so I was a miracle Grow gardener, frankly. And I moved to Anchorage, Alaska. And uh, when I was here in Anchorage, Alaska, I got an opportunity to write a garden column. And I started writing the garden column. And I think probably over the years, I recommended... I don't know, 20, 24 chemical things that people should be using in their yards and in their gardens, which have been removed from the market oh, uh, wow. since then. You know, I mean, so so I've been doing this for quite some time. You think back 45 years. Organic back then was not quite the same as organic today, but but I wasn't organic. I was a chemical head. I hated dandelions. You know, they had to be eradicated. Oh, um, man. What a change. Or, you know, aphids in the trees, killing the leaves. And, you know, I mean, I was just, I was the garden columnist in Anchorage, Alaska, and I was telling people the chemical warfare. What, was I mean, what perfect. made you change? What was that moment where you decided to go another direction? Well, you know, I was, a, I was a member of the Garden Writers of America, and we used to go to these meetings, and we would sit around the bars, you know, after the lectures and stuff, and, and we would have these conversations, and I would say to people, prove to me that organic gardening is is any different than chemical gardening. Nitrogen's nitrogen. The plant doesn't care. And I would always win the argument. Nobody could ever prove it. And then one day I'm sitting in the, I live in Anchorage, Alaska. I'm sitting in and minding my own business. My wife is off getting a, some kind of a degree someplace. And I get a note from my really good friend, Tom Alexander, who had a magazine. And he said, look, look at this picture. And it was a picture of a nematode being strangled by a fungal hyphae. Mm. Uh, as the fungal hyphae was protecting a tomato root. It's in the book, Teaming with Microbes. But I saw that picture. Underneath it, he wrote, Soil Food Web, You Lose. I couldn't figure what he was talking about. I had no idea what I was looking at. So it took me it took me hours and hours and hours to figure out what the picture was. It was an electron microscope picture. I'd never seen one before. Right. Unbelievable. Of this of nematode being strangled by this. And then he wrote the words, Soil Food Web, uh, you lose. So then I had to figure out what the soil food web was. And, I, and this was in the early days of the internet. And I hopping around looking and I finally find Dr. Elaine Ingham, 1988, and, uh, you know, a little discussion about that. And I was blown away. I mean, I was blown away. And that, that just, it just kicked me in the head. It was like the only thing I can, I can think that was close to, to that experience was when I discovered geometry. It just all fit together. Wow, it's perfect. And so I really just hooked line and sinker became a soil food levy. Transformational. And it sounds like that was the one argument you couldn't beat was I, the soil food web. It was proof. And there was pictures and it was logical and it made sense. And it explained so much about what I had experienced. And of course, everybody else in the world has experienced as a chemical head gardener. 
And so when I adopted it, I remember distinctly going to my publisher, the Daily News, the Anchorage Daily News, and saying, you know, I'm about to make a big change. Mm. Uh, and I'm not sure people are going to go for it. You know, this is Anchorage, Alaska. When people think of Alaska, they don't necessarily think of environmental, they think of oil company. But anyway, uh, right. it was quite something. It was quite something. I was quite worried about it. The newspaper gave us some consideration, decided to make a big play off it and advertised that I was going to make this big change. And when I made the change, I discovered, oh, my God, most people really go for this. They don't want to use chemicals. And so I had, A, a readership that didn't want to use chemicals, and B, I had a good beginning on the inkling, uh, of an inkling of the science of why you didn't need to use chemicals. And so when, you, when I put the two together, it resulted in a tremendous amount of research. You're right, I, I am a lawyer, and I guess I applied a lot of those research skills and uh, not only convinced myself that the soil mm. food web which is the science behind organic, the science behind organics and the soil food web being the science behind organics was the only way people should be gardening. And I became, uh, how do I put this, uh, beyond obnoxious uh, <laughs> when when it came to, to giving people gardening advice. And it, it turned out that being obnoxious was okay. If it had been four or five years earlier, it would not have been okay. But I mm. was on the surfboard riding a wave that was just a perfect wave. Organics, uh, I remember distinctly, organics was, was about a $600 million business when I started. Uh, and oh my God, if I'd bought a penny in every stock company that's been made, I mean, it right. is billions of dollars, but even more important, it is beginning to make a big enough impact to save to save ourselves, period. I mean, we have got to stop using these chemicals. We have got to start using the soil food web. We have got to start protecting the soil food web. And we have got to start building soil again because we're losing soil in this country in particular like no one's business. So I'm a big soil food webby. One of the things that always people always sort of get confused about you could just as easily say I was an organic gardener, soil food webby, regenerative agriculturist. Right. These are all the same things. That was one of my and questions as we hear biodynamic and all these yeah, different well, that's, elements. That's a of little farming. different. That's a, okay. some, of the, some of them are based upon a, well, Steiner, biodynamics. Uh, right. Rudolf Steiner, is, his writings are the basis of biodynamic gardening and biodynamic farming. I don't think teaming with microbes, you know, has the same kind of religious. Uh, <laughs> Doesn't have the spiritual overtones, yeah. Yeah, but but it should. And actually, that's when you put all the books together. We'll get to this. When you put all three of the books together, that's what I want people to walk away with: a spiritual awareness that replaces perhaps even the Bible. I mean, I don't want to sound Trumpian if I can say that word. Uh, uh, but, Use the but, B word. But I, I, I really think that when you take a look at how the system operates, you can get very religious about it. You can I'm have that same levels. awe, the power of it what's going on. These invisible forces that are building everything on the planet, that are building all life that we see. So it really the heart of all of these different what we can call, quote-unquote, alternative, non-chemical means, start with the soil food web. In its most basic sense, what is that soil food web? Best you can define it. 
Okay, really easy. Uh, you yeah, know, small topic. Food chains. We have a little guy gets eaten by the bigger guy gets eaten by the bigger guy. That's a food chain. Right. And I want to say hundreds of thousands, there could be millions, who knows, of these food chains in the soil. And every now and then, something on one of these chains either looks up or looks down and sees a different food chain and something on it that it can eat, and it eats it and connects the two chains. And after a while, you have so many chains connected that you have a web of who eats whom in the soil, and that is what a soil food web is. Now, what it is and how it operates are two different things because it's very easy to, on a flat piece of paper to, re to recognize you know, this beautiful soil food web. At the bottom of the soil food web are bacteria and fungi. Now, they're attracted in our instance, in terms of plants, they are attracted to the root system by the plant itself. The plant takes photosynthetic energy, uses it to produce not only the tomato, and not only the flower, but also to produce things that drip out of the root system called exudates. And as we sit here talking, and your listeners are listening, we're all exudating. We are dripping sweat out of our bodies, and that is exudase. And it's exactly the same thing that happens with a plant, and it contains the same kinds of stuff, lots of carbons, and it attracts bacteria and fungi. So the bacteria and fungi in the soil are attracted to the carbon that are in these exudates. Now, where is it located? Right up there next to the root in what we call the rhizosphere. This little right. area right next to the root system. So they're happily eating these exudates and they're having a great time. And along come protozoa and, and nematodes. Right. We all studied protozoa in school. Nobody remembers them. I always show a picture of a paramecium and nobody remembers what it was. But we all spent weeks diagramming them. <laughs> and amoebas, those are the protozoa. And nematodes, we didn't study because they're too scary. But your body is covered with nematodes. Ugh. And if you disappeared, your body space would be locatable by the nematodes that were all there that remain. So uh, you're covered with nematodes. Everything is covered with nematodes. They are true worms. They have different mouth parts depending on what they eat. And some of them eat bacteria and some of them eat fungi. So the mm. nematodes and the protozoa eat the bacteria and the fungi because the nematodes and the protozoa need the carbon that are in them. Right. So they also take some of the other elements out of them, but they don't need everything. And so some of the stuff is left over, some of it's excreted. And what you end up with is basically a nematode and protozoa poop that contains the remains of bacteria and fungi that are usable by plants. So nutrients are released when these guys get eaten. Yeah. And where does it all happen? Right there next to the root system, and the stuff goes into the plants. Now, the first book, Taming with Microbes, is all about the system. And yes. so I stop right there at that root. But what I talk about are the various species that are in the soil food web, most of them. And I talk about what they do in addition to providing the nutrients to the plant. So right. they create soil structure. 
That's because bacteria have a slime that causes them to stick together. That slime sticks to individual particles of soil that stick to each other. The fungi come along and weave together those little stick together pieces of, of, and so you end up with these beautiful aggregates of soil, but these pieces that are being stuck together are not bricks. They're not flat. And so there are pore spaces created, and those pore spaces become soil structure. Who knew that it was the bacteria and the fungi that are creating the soil structure? And then, of course, you got you got spaces for the little guys to hide from the bigger guys. The bigger guys weave through that soil, you know, things like worms, and, and they create more pore spaces, and, and they're eating each other and pooping each other out and leaving dead things around. And fungi that are not involved in feeding the plant are out there breaking them down. Right. So available for the fungus and then you've got the worldwide mycorrhizal web because specialized fungus are attracted to these plants by a signal that the plant puts out and they invade the plant and they end up in return for these wonderful exudates these carbons they go out and get from the soil things the plant can't get for itself they can break down phosphorus. They can go out and bring water back into the plant. They can get zinc and copper and all sorts of nutrients. And they can move further out into the soil than the plant itself goes. So the root hairs are in one area. They go beyond the root hairs, which is much easier for the plant because they're not growing that fungus. The fungus is growing itself. Wonderful way to go. Yeah. And somebody else is doing the energy consumption. So All it takes is a little bit of carbon from the plant, and bingo, look what it gets in return. As as Elaine Ingham likes to say, and she is the guru of soil food web, you know, it's cake and cookies, and they love it. And they bring back the goodies so that they continue to get that great stuff. And so you've got this beautiful system, and I know your emphasis is on mushrooms, which is why I mentioned the mycorrhizal fungi, but this beautiful system not only supports the plant, but supports your favorite thing, the fungi which is terrific. We're talking about a healthy system. I mean, the sequence you describe is a thriving soil ecosystem right. where, you know, the bacteria and fungi make up that kind of lowest trophic level that, that's going on out, making healthy soil, giving plants more nutrients. And I do want to talk about some of the things you highlight that fungi, yeah. mycorrhizal fungi actually give to plants, even aside sure. from nutrients, they imbue sure. so many benefits. Sure. But I guess one part that really struck me about teaming with microbes was the ability to assess our own soil and see, right. you know, as home gardeners, home small farmers, whatever the case may be, how do we know where we are in terms of our own sure. soil ecosystem? Sure. So what are some ways maybe we can diagnose and then ways we can create that thriving system you just described? Right. And it's gotten easier since I wrote the book in 2006 because there's some new things that happened. But of course, you follow the rules of the soil food web. Uh, you read the book, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and Step one, read the book. Right. And the last step is never lend the book to anybody. Make them go out and buy their own copy. You'll uh, never get it back. <laughs> but yeah, if you look in the back of the book, you'll see there's there are 19 rules. There were 20 rules. The 20th rule was never lend this book out. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny, uh, but I guess the publisher did not. Anyway, so now there are only 19 rules there instead of the 20th rule. The idea is that you, you want to get as much information as you can about your soil so that you can determine whether you have a soil food web, what it's like, and if it needs improving, how to improve it, and then finally, 
what is it going to need to maintain it once you have it? So, of course, what we used to rely on almost exclusively were soil food web tests. And these are specialized mm -hmm. tests. You can get them from various soil food web labs around the, around the world. And uh, you send in a sample of compost tea and even compost, and you get a result back, which will tell you your fungal bacteria ratio. It may give you some numbers. And uh, in the case of mycorrhizal fungi, it gives you a little bit more information. This is a great way to know what you've got in your soil and how it's doing. And I certainly advise everybody to get that test. It is a great way to know what your soil food weight is. Kind of know where you're starting, yeah. Yeah. Now, there's another test that's come along, and it's relatively new. It's only about a year, year and a half old, and it's uh, called a microbiometer. Hmm. And you test your soil with a microbiometer, and you can learn about the soil food web. Incidentally, you can learn just Google soilfoodweb.com. The microbiometer, same thing, microbiometer, uh, microbiometer.com. And uh, what this is, is a way to measure your microbial biomass. Now, what is microbial biomass? The biomass in your soil is correlated to the amount of nitrogen that is available to your plants in your soil. Biomass would include the dead and the live bacteria and fungi, protozoa, nematodes, these little microbes actually end up creating a tremendous amount of mass in the soil. And it used to be that in order to measure this, and so let me just back up for a second. So if you have a biomass and you have a plant, it's good to know, first of all, whether the biomass is sufficient enough to provide enough nitrogen to support the plant. It's also important to know whether what you're giving your plant by terms of care, whether it's a fertilizer, mulching, composting, whether that's increasing your biomass, which is right. good, or whether it's decreasing the biomass, doing something bad to the soil food web, therefore killing and reducing, and you're not getting the increases. Hmm, interesting. So, and then you also discover, as you use this instrument or this test kit, that during certain times of the year, the plant increases the biomass and certain times of the year it stops and so when you can measure that you might be able to use that for timing for when you might want to do things so the old way of doing biomass tests and really still the standard is about a 500 dollar week to two week test okay and it's very expensive it takes a long time and if you're growing cannabis and you want to know what's going on, you want to know now. You don't want to wait two weeks. You know, <laughs> you might be, who knows? Uh, so this test runs about 5 to $10 per test. And you can do it in about 10 minutes. And this is and the microbiometer. It, yeah. And you can do it in your own field, garden, home, wherever you want to do it. So Sounds like everyone a, needs one. They do. Brand new. Uh, it's being improved all the time. They've just added the ability to take your pH at the same test. And what you do is you you take this very simple sample using the kit. You put a drop of liquid on a little card. You take a picture of it with your cell phone, and the results pop up. It's phenomenal. Oh, I mean, it's really a merger of modern technology. It's just terrific, and and yeah. it's available to home people. So, and now to tie it in again to what your listeners really are interested in, 
Now it has the ability of not only giving you the number that represents your biomass, say 200, 300, something like that. 300 is a pretty good number. 400 is a great number. My soil up here is 1,200. Wow. Wow. Phenomenal stuff. Teeming with Uh, life. Absolutely. But she can now, or the test now, will tell you the fungal bacteria ratio. Now, why would that be important? Why is that important? Okay. It is important, and it's important for a reason, which is, again, explained in teeming with microbes. And that is that plants like two different kinds of nitrogen. Some plants like ammonia nitrogen, you know, nitrates, NH3 plus, NH4 or whatever. And some plants like nitrates, nitrites, nitrates in particular. And that's NO3, uh, NO3 minus. So plants can generally thrive off of both of these, but they really prefer one over the other. And it turns out that some plants like one kind of nitrogen over the other. And and so you want to give the plant the kind of nitrogen it likes. And so the way we used to think about this is we would take a look at the succession from the beach to the old growth forest. At the beach level, you basically only have bacteria. And the reason you only have bacteria is because there's really not much there for the fungi to eat. There's nothing there for the fungi to eat. Once these bacterial plants begin to die... The fungi move in to break down the stuff that was the old bacterially fed plant. And so the fungi begin to move in. When you go across the spectrum from beach to old growth forest, the bacteria level basically stays the same. But the fungal number goes up. Mm. So by the time you get over to the old growth forest end, the very far end, it can be 50,000 fungi to one bacterium. Whereas at the other end, you know, it was 50,000 bacterium to one fungi. So you get this change. Now we know, therefore, that plants that grow in the old growth forest area, they like fungi produced nitrogen. They like the ammonia nitrogen. We know that plants that grow closer towards the beach area, they like the nitrate nitrogen. So you just have to figure out where your plant is along that continuum. It's a little complicated to do it. The way I tell people to do it is if a plant's in the ground for more than a year, it's fungal. It likes fungally dominated soil. If it's in the ground for less than a year, then it likes bacterially dominated soil. And the longer or the shorter it's in the ground, so something like a kale plant, yeah. Oh, that's really bacterial. No fungal. You know, if it's in the ground for a long time, like a uh, peony plant, yes. wow, that's in there for a long time. That like fungal. And so you can, knowing this, you can feed the soil food web in order to get a more fungal soil food web or a more bacterial soil food web. That means you can feed your compost to get more bacterial or more fungal. That means you can put mulches down that feed fungal versus bacterial. So knowing the fungal bacterial ratio is very, very important. Just as important as knowing NPK. 
And this is the importance of learning your own soil. And that was one of my big questions was how much does a soil food web vary based on geography and climate of where you are, you know, obviously past land use, all those things. So getting that baseline and knowing what you want to grow are super important to customize your soil food web. And baseline is the important thing because information is power. Once you have that baseline, it doesn't do you any good. Well, there's some good, but it does you much more good if you take another test six months later or whatever, yes. you know, whatever, it's just important to do. And most gardeners don't. And now right. notice, we haven't really even talked NPK. You know, we haven't talked what most gardeners normally would test, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, the potassium, you know, all the minerals, of it, which are covered in teeming with nutrients, but we're still a teeming with microbes. So, so far, we've just talked about the soil and how, basically, how plants get the food. It's that soil food web. It, it, you know, it starts out with a big piece of horse manure. It gets broken down by a dung beetle that gets invaded by springtails that ends up with fungi breaking it down even more. And then bacteria move in and then you end up with soil. And that soil contains in it all the protozoa and nematodes which are the fertilizer spreaders and all of the fertilizer bags, the bacteria and the fungi you could possibly want. And that is sort of what teaming with microbes is all about. How you get that wonderful soil food web created so that you can grow the very best plants. But I never talk about the plants and what the plant does with the soil food web. So along comes teaming with nutrients. Teeming with nutrients. One day, I'm sitting at a restaurant chain. I think it's called Pepe the Pepe's or something like that. I don't know what. I, I was at a <laughs> conference. Actually, it was a garden writers conference. I was in Indianapolis. I'll never forget it. I was with my wife. We were at this restaurant, and it had been recommended. And the walls were covered with pictures of people eating. And the wall, one across from me were four women, 50s, you know, 1950s. Uh, wearing these satiny dresses, little books of me, uh, and they were eating spaghetti. And I was sitting there saying to myself, I wonder how plants eat. I mean, how do plants eat? <laughs> right. What a stupid question to ask, you know, uh, particularly to your wife. But I asked it, what do plants eat? She said, I don't know. You know what, do I, what do plants, how do they eat? We know what they eat. How do they eat? And what happens when they do eat it? So we went through the meal and everything else. You know, I began to gnaw at me a little bit. And I began, I, I was at this garden writers conference and I was, I, I would ask the New York Perfect Times. Perfect place to ask. Writer, I would ask all these people who were famous, how do plants eat? Anyway, nobody gave me an answer. Nobody knew. Really bothered me. So I had to find out for myself. Unlike the first book, which I wrote for Elaine Ingham, basically, this book I wrote for myself. I needed to know how plants ate really began to bother me and uh it took quite a while and i figured it out and it made so much sense that it made sense to write a book to go with team with microbes so i would have two books that fit together and the way it made sense was as follows let me see if i can do this Stop me when you need to because you connect it, connect it together. No, I love this. I mean, because yeah. teaming with nutrients gets into the micronutrients, the macronutrients that the plants need. Yeah. So let's connect yeah. it all together here. Yeah, but it doesn't really get into the microbes that much. But the connection is this it does get into the microbes this far. 
how do plants eat? Well, the first thing that I had to figure out was a little bit of cellular biology. I mean, what, where's the mouth, so to speak? <laughs> right. And that, that led me to really a study of botany, which is something that you would think somebody who wrote a best-selling book that's been translated into 11 different languages, teaming with micro, you know, about to be translated into Spanish. I got people from China looking at I had never taken a botany course. And so <laughs> I really needed to figure out what was going on. And what I discovered was that it, every plant is basically just cells, lots and lots of cells, and that these cells sort of act like individual bees in a beehive. When you right. look at an individual bee, you're not looking at something that's alive. That bee is not alive. Why? Because the definition of life is you've got to be able to reproduce. That bee can't reproduce. The hive is alive. Wow. But that bee is not alive. What a mind-bending so, concept. Wow. But it's true. But it's true. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, it's one of those things that people don't think about, but it's true that the hive is the life, not the individual. So these individual cells are what make the plant up. And so in a tree outside your, you know, that's 30 trillion individual cells. And each one of those cells is connected to each other. If you got into one of those cells and you were small enough and you had a canoe that could canoe, you would be able to canoe from one cell into the next cell without ever leaving cytoplasm, without ever going outside of a cell wall, without ever going out into, you would just be inside cell. They're all connected on the inside. So you've got the cytoplasm and the inside, and that cytoplasm is where the nucleus and all the little organelles are contained. And it is held together by a membrane that's a plasma membrane. What's a plasma membrane? Plasma is like fire. When you walk up to your television set and you take your finger and you squish it across the screen, you get this static electricity and a streak across the screen because it's a plasma screen. So you have this plasma, this living, fiery plasma holding all of these organelles, organelles and cytoplasm yeah. inside. Now, the plasma membrane, and I won't go into how they're constructed because that's important. It's in the book. You can read it if you get interested. But, right, but right. It, embedding the plasma, embedded in this membrane, floating around in it. So think of, uh, let's see, what can people think of? Think of like a tennis ball. Are these straws that go through the tennis ball? So part of the straw is outside the tennis ball, part of the straw is inside right. the tennis ball. And what they actually are in the plant situation and in me and you, because we have these same cells uh, and with the same kind of membrane around it, those straws are individual proteins, different kinds of proteins. And they act as tunnels and pipes and revolving doors, literally a tunnel, a pipe, a revolving door, elevators, which require power, they right. require different things 
in order to operate. And so molecules can get into the plant by going through these embedded proteins. And what molecules are we interested in? The only ones that go into the plant, the food molecules. Right. So the plant mouth are these proteins, but they operate electrically. They all have a little electrical charge. So in order for, say, calcium or phosphorus or nitrogen to get through them, there's got to be an electrical charge because there's an electrical mechanism basically involved. Well, what puts the charge on a molecule? Nothing does it better than microbe soil food web interaction. And so when you get these pooped out bacteria and pooped out fungi, the nutrients that come pooped out with them come pooped out with a charge. Have their electrical transport pathway pass already on them. Right. Now, it turns out there are, so far that we know, 18 nutrients which a plant needs. Okay. I'm going to get back to that beehive in life in a minute. 18 nutrients that a plant needs. Turns out there are 18 different embedded proteins around. And the only protein that gets through me is the one that I'm designed for. So there's separate pathways for each different nutrient. Right. And this electrical charge, is this kind of the basis of this idea of bioavailable? Yes, it is to me and you because we know what it is. But right, it right. Be to other people, to other people, it's just you know, eh, it's made by animal. It's made by life. It's easier for the organism to uptake. It's nice to it's know the, this this scientific underpinning. Yeah. It's the only way they can take it in. And so when you look at you know, you go to any chart, a good chart that's got the nutrients, carbon, hydrogen. It's got CO two minus or nitrogen, NO3 minus, NH4 plus. That charge is the charge that's required for it to get into the cell. Now, once it's in the cell, then it's got to be assembled. So, okay, now we know how they eat. So the microbes, soil, food web, blah, 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 breaks it all down. Chemical. So I had to learn some chemistry. Okay. Naturally. Chemistry, oh my God. I promise readers, however, I don't think there's one chemical equation in teaming with nutrients. Thankfully, there is no chemical equations. I still have some PTSD from those in high school. Yeah, so I had me too, and so there there were none. But anyway, the system is simply spectacular because what happens inside that cell is like the same thing that happens here on Earth. There are, in each individual cell, enzymes. And so what has to happen is all of the building blocks, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, the oxygen, carbon, blah, blah, all of those 18 nutrients gets into the cell. They have to be put together. Right. And so they're put together by enzymes. Every individual cell contains probably a thousand different kinds of enzymes and maybe 10,000 individual molecules of each enzyme. But you've got to get energy. So now you've got in that cell, you've got mitochondria providing energy. So you've got all these little tractor trailers of generators running around providing energy. And so the enzymes are taking the energy, putting together things. Then you get all of a sudden, uh, you know, something whips out of the out of the nucleus, a little pore hole, and it 
goes into a ribosome, which is like a little uh, duplicating machine. And it, holy crow, the next thing you know, there's a template and the enzymes are moving individual molecules into place along that template so that it can end up making whatever. It's just an unbelievable system. And it's all, and you've got 30 trillion cells where the same things are going on. Holy crow. And then some of the stuff is used inside that cell. What for? Well, you got to make those proteins that are embedded in the wall. Right. And some of those proteins, incidentally, are only used for three or four molecules. That's it. Some of those proteins actually are created, and they're called aquaporins. They let water into the cell, and oh, they let in 10,000 water molecules a nanosecond. I mean, it's like, whoa. What goes on down there? And so as you get into the book, you've got to get deeper and deeper into what's happening inside that cell. It's unbelievable. But each individual cell is connected to the next cell. And so when there's a calcium signal, because there's also little signal proteins inside these membranes. Right. The availability of different nutrients sends signals throughout the plant. Oh, my God. All sorts of stuff happens and it tickles something in the root. And all of a sudden, in a nanosecond, a stomata opens up in a leaf. Who knows? You know, I mean, oh, my God. And some of the things are used to make stuff, the flower. I mean, where is it made? I mean, you know, it's made in the cell, and then it's put together and creates it. Oh, my. It's mind-boggling. And so by the time you get to the end, and I cover, incidentally, what each of the nutrients do because each nutrient has different some are structural some are right signaling and, and you have so, some great hints about how to see judging from a plant maybe what it's deficient in based on some symptoms some but really what i hope the takeaway is use that as a as a guide but don't use it as a bible because for example lack of nitrogen can show up in 10,000 different leaf problems so just a yellow leaf, it gives you an idea. It might be a nitrogen problem, but gee whiz, you know, it could be 10,000 other things, you know. So, <laughs> so you yeah. know, you, you got, you can, that's why we do other kinds of tests. And that's why it's important to test your soil, not only for uh, biomass, but NPK as well, because you want to know what's available, et cetera. And the book covers what you do in order to be able to supply the soil yes. food web with what it needs to be able to supply the individual cells with all the nutrients. And this is where we get into things like compost and compost teas and different ways of delivering these nutrients, ideally, that integrate into that soil food web, then have the necessary charge to actually be usable by the plants most easily. Right, right, right. And then, of course, recognizing that, that one of the other ways that a plant gets its food is through these mycorrhizal fungi, which I, yes. which I had to revise the first book. The first book came out in 2006. It was revised 2011, I think, 10 or 11, because there was so much new information about mycorrhizal fungus. I had to add in a chapter. I only had a paragraph. Originally, so a chapter went in. And then by 2017, whatever it was, there was so much that I just had to write a whole book on it. So teaming with fungi fits in between microbes and nutrients in terms of the big trilogy 
of teeming books. Where you needed this focus on fungi, because you know you talked about the mycorrhizal web, and I think a lot of people out there can associate that. Now it's kind of mainstream enough. People associate yeah, yeah. that with the big forests. They know, oh, it's the wood wide web, the internet of the right. forest. Right. But we don't always think about it in association with our garden plants. But I mean, really, they're integral to 95% of plants on the planet, everything from grasses to the fungi that support things like sure. tomato plants, like blueberries. So I guess, what are the major categories of mycorrhizal fungi that we sure. need to know about? Sure. Yeah, I'm kind of laughing because my editor for Teaming with Microbes, when you know all of these articles started coming out about the worldwide, you know, I mean, I would send them to her and I would go, where are these? How come they haven't read the book? You know, I, mean, <laughs> I wish I had the opportunity to be in school again. You know, when Teaming with Microbes was coming out, there was so much stuff going on. What we now know is that there are, I want to say, eight mycorrhizal fungi categories, major right. categories. Uh, we have the ones that we're interested in as gardeners and yardeners, and, and those are basically broken down into what we call endomycorrhizal fungi, which are invisible go inside in between the cells of the plant and, you know, form this vagination and they do all sorts of stuff. And they're very, very useful for agricultural crops and viniculture and cannabis. And then you've got the, the ecto, which are much bigger in terms of visibility. They produce a mushroom or a, if you see a fruiting body near a tree of mushroom, that's a fruiting body of the network of invisible fungal hypi that are down below. Whereas the, endo are invisible you have to stain them in order to be able to see them right you can see with a magnifying glass their spores because they're much bigger than the ectospores where you see you make prints you know mushroom prints etc cetera, etc cetera. then there's sort of combinations of the two endo ecto mycorrhizal there's a an orchid ecto mycorrhizal orchids won't even germinate if the mycorrhizal fungi is not there there's a special mycorrhizal fungi for blueberry type plants yeah. which you have to have and that's why a lot of people have trouble growing blueberries it's right. always a good idea to bring soil from the area where the plant is being grown or comes from and then you get the mycorrhizal fungi when it comes to mycorrhizal fungi however the ones that we use in a commercial basis the endo ecto you know there are about three or four hundred that we know of mm. but we can only reproduce on a commercial basis 15 that kind of number very wow. low number but they but they have not, wide wide associations yeah. right most of them do yeah and so as long as your plant gets associated with the right one you're going to be okay and and it does make a difference big time big time because if yeah. they're not there you have to replace what they do and that means work and work <laughs> is not what gardening is about gardening supposed to be a hobby so it's one of those things. But again, in terms of fungi, walking around and you know, being able to know that a truffle is definitely a mycorrhizal fungi, being able to know that a morel is a mycorrhizal fungi, it just it gives you a much more finer appreciation of what's going on. And, and uh, where I live, we have tremendous numbers of Amanita mascara. Really yeah. beautiful. You know, it's the... It's the uh, Christmas mushroom. In pine uh, forests up there, or what are they associated with? Well, they're in spruce. Okay, they conifer. They're associated with 
birch trees here in Alaska. And so I get phone calls from people and they say, you know, as a garden columnist, hey, what do I do about these mushrooms? I say rejoice because if you don't have those, your birch trees are going to die. Right. And they're beautiful. They're gorgeous. Of course, they are psychedelic. It's crazy, you know, but and of course, uh, one of the things I always like to show people when when I give my talks, there were places in Siberia where the shaman would go out and he would collect the urine from caribou reindeer that were eating these mushroom. He would take that urine, he would drink it, trip his gourd out, but his <laughs> urine diluted it enough so that when given to the rest of the village, they would have this gigantic ceremony involving Amanita mascara, et cetera, et cetera. So mushroom, Christmas, red, white, having fun, it's all related. It's yeah. all related. There's a reason Santa's red with white trimmings on him because of the, the but, Siberian but, shaman but mythos. And that's why all of these books are related. And even down to the point where it got so bad when with teeming with nutrients, I was, I was walking around with my wife, you know, and I was so into the cellular biology of it all. And again, it's only when you have the full plant that you've got real life. That cell doesn't reproduce itself. So I would walk around and I would see things and I would go, oh my God, that reminds, that looks like, that looks like a mitochondria or, oh my goodness gracious, that looks like the infrastructure called tubules that are inside both fungi and uh, these plant cells and where you know things would move along these oh my god i was going crazy and it occurred to me the reason i was going crazy because we live in a horton here's i think oh and this is so <laughs> tie it all into the spirituality i don't know maybe you want to finish it here i don't know we live in a horton i think a horton here's a, a whole world when i see the fedex truck coming up my driveway delivering a package, I think of the googly body inside a cell where proteins are assembled and put together and packaged and shipped off. As above, so below, you know, the biggest scale, the smallest scale, it all mirrors itself. That's a much better way of putting it than Horton Hears a Who. Uh, (laughs) Well, I love Horton Hears a Who. I love that book. And we're in Who. And so I always tell people when you're out there, foraging for mushrooms, when you're out there gardening, when you're out there gardening, when you're with plants and fungi, you need to every now and then just look up, take a deep breath in, and scream out because you're the who. It all ties together. And when you put these three books together, Team with Microbes, Team with Fungi, Team with Nutrients, and you read them all together, you recognize that what we have is a gigantic system that is everything. Uh, and, this is and the nuts and bolts of life on this planet, yeah. Everything we are comes from this system. Everything we are. Now, everything we think comes from these systems too. Now, what do I mean by that? We are more bacteria as humans than we are human cells. We have fungi throughout. Fungi that get into the little bug. They get into the ant. Right, the cordyceps. Unbelievable how that works. Now, 
that fungi is so good. You always see the YouTube where they, the ant goes all the way up to the top of the thing. And that's not what happens, I don't think. I think the ant goes up only so far. The fungi controls how far up it goes. It has to hit the right currents and the right temperature right. and be far enough away so that it can... Oh, my goodness. And it makes you think how much we're influenced by all the fungal and bacterial organisms living within us. And, Who's making these decisions? And then you think about there's a disease that cats have that uh, was discovered by a, a wonderful gentleman in Czechoslovakia. Uh, and it comes from cat feces. And what it is is a fungal disease. And it goes from the cat into the feces. The feces is eaten by rodents. Whoever gets infected by this particular fungus ends up acting differently than the other folks that are in the crowd. And so maybe more aggressive, more mm. out front, and is the one that gets eaten. <laughs> gets eaten because the fungus needs it to be eaten so that it gets into the cat so that it can reproduce itself. Right. Now, they've discovered that humans have that fungus. In particular, it causes, look it up, women to be much more aggressive and wow. red and put on lots of red lipstick and People who are infected have more car accidents because they're more aggressive as drivers. And my point is, we're all impacted by all of this stuff. We are all connected to the point where we think we're in control. I'm not sure we are. I'm not and, sure we are. And I'm not sure how much we're just one individual. You know, you start realizing how we are just this amalgam of biology and all these different organisms. Right. And maybe that's the only way that we're, quote unquote, alive is when we are this colony of bustling sure. organisms. And maybe religion is when you assign a specific cause for all of this to operate. Right. You know, I'm not there yet. I'm looking for that fourth book. Uh, <laughs> and maybe maybe that, that'll have it in it. I don't know. But, but, but it is all connected. It is mythical, mystical and scientific at the same time. And it's just really... I was going to ask you if this intimate relationship with the soil food web and all these machinations had any spiritual impact. So I'm glad right out of the gate, we got to that this is the new religion. Uh, so that oh, answered yeah. that question. That answered sure. that question firmly. And, you know, before we wrap up, a couple of things that did strike me about the Teeming with Fungi book. Not only do you talk about the nutrient uptake that a lot of us know about, you talk about some other things like hormone production drought tolerance, soil restoration. So obviously the plants are getting a lot from their partnership with fungi. Right. Uh, but you have a point in there where you ask, but what are the fungi getting out of this? So quick overview, what are the fungi getting out of that relationship with plants? Well, you know, they're getting a purpose in life. <laughs> <laughs> we all need that. Uh, it's a terrible thing. To do. Uh, no, they, they are, of course, getting the exudates. I mean, literally, they're getting those exudates. Now, right. you know, most of these mycorrhizal fungi need those exudates or they don't exist. So it's the IV drip of those exudates and nutrients, mostly carbon from the plant. Absolutely. And it's the plant that drives it. I wasn't sure when I was writing the book, is it the fungi that discovers the plant or does the plant call the fungi over? And it's the latter. The fungi are very sensitive to the signal which the plant gives out 
it's a very specific uh, uh, molecule that attracts, and bingo, they go. But you're absolutely right. I mean, they do an awful lot. And it's not just for the plant. It's for me and you, too. You know, I mean, yeah. we need we need them for soil structure. Without the fungi, we're in big trouble. I mean, are they the keystone species? I, I think they may be. I uh, think there, there's no question if you take them away, we're finished. If you take away bacteria, wouldn't we still be able to survive? I think so. But I, I'm not I'm not enough of a scientist to know, but I think fungi <laughs> And to tie it back to your roots as a chemical head, how is that modality of agriculture not supporting these oh, things yeah. that we've talked about? Oh, that's easy. You know, I mean, I used to take the very simplistic viewpoint that when you put down a chemical, it was a salt and it would kill off all the microbes. It kills off a lot of microbes. I mean, you know, you have single cell organisms, you put down salt. And what happens is the water in the single cell organism goes to dilute the salts. The salt goes inside the organism. And you end up blowing up the organism, of course. But so some of them are killed. But what, what also happens, and I think I'm beginning to think this is more the story. What happens is you end up with a radical change in the structure of your soil food web. So when mm. you put down, I'll use miracle Grow as an example, there are certain organisms that love it, and there are certain organisms that hate it, and there are right. some organisms that get killed by it. But what happens is you put it down there, you're not going to see worms because they don't like it. So you don't get what the worms bring to the system. You're going to get more of one kind of bacteria and less of another kind of bacteria, and you're going to get numbers that are not in natural balance. Right. And okay. so you end up with a plant that's confused. Mm. And in many instances, it's so confused that you have to do things to unconfuse it. That's A. In many right. instances, the partnerships which the plant normally has set up, for example, nitrogen fixation, it's a partnership between plant. it's the bacterial partnership that the fungi are to the mycorrhizal partnership. Right? right? So you've got bacteria doing the same thing that the mycorrhizal fungi are doing, only it's just nitrogen. It's not nitrogen, copper, phosphorus, etc. So <clears throat> what happens is you, you end up with an imbalance. You end up with a confused plant. You end up with a plant that says, why am I in this partnership with the fungi? I'm getting nitrogen for free. Why am I so wow, yeah, all yeah, of a sudden sure. it stops doing things that it would normally be. And the bacteria and fungus are at the bottom of that soil food web. And if you're impacting the bacteria and fungus in a negative way, and right. by negative I mean in a way that's not natural for that individual plant, then you either have to come in and fix it or you have to be them. And that means, again, work. You end up with a plant that's confused. You end up with these partnerships being broken. You don't end up with the same amount of, of slime. You don't end up with the same amount of fungi weaving these things together. So you begin to lose soil structure. If the worms don't like the smell of the stuff, even though they're not killed by it and don't show up, then they're not taking in the soil and adding nutrients to what comes out the other end as worm compost is, you know, it's yeah. higher, higher value. You're missing out on all of that stuff. Why? Because you put a chemical down. And then all of a sudden, you've got to continue to put it down or the plant 
won't live. It becomes addicted to it. There's this carefully constructed organic mechanism that's so incredibly complex that is nature and this way that in which plants grow, the way in which they interact with the soil food web. Why right. would you ever want to throw that off? Right. You would want to try right. to make that thing a well-oiled machine. And that's, I think that's why people use the term regenerative. It's just soil yeah. food web. I mean, right. it's keeping the soil food web alive. Well, you know, what do we do? What you learn in teaming with nutrients is we are violating the law of return as mm -hmm. gardeners. Why? Because we cut the flowers that should die and go down and decay and right. feed the microbes that feed the plant. We cut the cucumbers. We take the tomatoes. We pull down the cannabis plant. We take out the grapes. You know, we're violating the law of return, which says what a plant produces is supposed to be produced by that plant in order to keep it alive and keep the next plant alive. Right. And so we've got to, you know, we are regenerative. We put the stuff back. That's what we're talking about. Soil food web, keeping it alive is regenerative. Biodynamic, we, you know, we're adding the biology. We're, we're keeping that biology dynamic by adding stuff in to keep it going, even because we're violating that law of return. So it all fits in. It all fits in. These books, again, when you read all three of them together, I always tell people, you buy teaming with microbes, and if you don't like that book, I'll buy it back at three times the price. That book is sold over two. I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you a fact here. It sold yeah. over 200,000 copies in English. God knows how many illegal copies are out there. <laughs> uh, it's in 11 different, I mean, Turkish, French, Korean. No one's ever asked for their money back on that book. <laughs> uh, you read it and you'll get, you'll understand why it's so important that all your friends do, that all your farmer, gardener, everybody needs to use this system, no matter what you call it. Because if we don't, we're taking away the keystone product, soil, that if we don't have, we're screwed. And we're all concerned about the environment. We all want to do something well. It starts with the soil and it starts with the smallest organisms in the system. Now, as someone with a pulse on this, I mean, to me, this seems like it's much more based in actual science, the actual science of biology that creates a healthy system, this method of gardening or just cultivating plants. Is this becoming the mainstream now? I mean, do you see in the yeah. future that we will supplant the old way that kind of was really born out of the post-World War II, having too much industrial Absolutely. capacity right. and chemicals? Do you think this is now going to finally supplant that? Absolutely. No question about it. And certainly in terms of the Home gardener, I think it already has. I'll give you a couple of examples. I remember when I first came upon Dr. Elaine Ingham, she and I went to a garden conference, garden writers conference in the Seattle area. <clears throat> and I asked how many people in the audience knew what a mycorrhizal fungus was. Now, the New York Times, I mean, you name it, they were all there. 750 of the world's best garden writers of the year. Not one person. Oh, come on. All hands up for that one. Come on, guys. In 2000, that was 2004 or five. Okay. Not one hand went up. No one knew. My editor didn't know what it was. My spell checker didn't know what it was. Whoa. And of course, back then, we were basically sponsored by Miracle Grow as a, as a group, the garden writers. All of the chemical companies, Bayer, you name it, they were all big. And we were all chemical heads. 
Horace Hagedorn, the founder of Miracle Grow, came and spoke to the group. I mean, he gave scholarships. He was revered like crazy. He loved. And then you flash forward to today. You can't find a garden writer in America that suggests chemicals. I don't know any that wow. are telling people they should be using these poisons. Think about the last time you read an article. If it was saying that you should be using a chemical, it was written by that company. Not by, <laughs> right. not by somebody in my organization. Right. Last week, one of my friends sent me an article that was on the internet where Scott's Miracle Grow is telling people to leave their leaves on the lawn. Oh, this is terrific. I can't believe they were doing it. I mean, ah, they have seen the light. The biggest wow. seller I understand of organics in this country, therefore probably the world, is Scott's Miracle Grow. They've got organic labels left and right. Now, organic, organic, but so yeah, we're getting there. When you walk into your supermarket now, you see an organic section that's substantial. And this book first came out, Team Red Microbes, there were organic sections in supermarkets. This explosion of knowledge when it comes to soil health really is one of the things I hold on to that gives me hope that, yes, we can move in the other direction. I mean, look at what we just discovered within the past couple of decades. It's going to take us a little while to catch up and implement this wide scale, but there is hope to, to turn back some of the damage. And I believe that movie that just came out, Kiss the Ground, oh yeah, which I'm sure yeah, you're familiar with. Yeah. And there's another one, Fantastic Fungi, which Paul uh, Stamets did. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, they're all phenomenal. They're, they just, ah, I'm going to cry every time I see these things. Yeah. And I've been, I've been working like crazy to get the book translated. You would think it'd be easy to do, uh, <laughs> into Spanish and Chinese. I think we get those oh. two languages and bingo, you know, we get millions, millions of more people who start to understand this is what we must do. I mean, it's the solution to, to, well, <laughs> If we, we're losing so much soil in the United States, we got 20 years left. It's blowing away. It's blowing yeah. away. I, yeah. I, one of my favorite books, and I wish I could remember the name of it, but I can't right now. It was a depiction of the, uh, 1930s and the, and the, uh, terrible the problems Bowl. in the Dust Bowl. And it just turned out that they were having a debate in Washington, D.C. when some of these dust clouds began to boil into Washington, D.C. We're not having that happen right now because we thank God we're not in that quite situation. But we need to have that kind of thing happen in this country to stop the nonsense right. that occurs. Roundup, you name it, uh, killing rototilling, all of these terrible chemicals that we're putting down that we're allowed to use even though we know they're not good for us. Things that we, well, we need a new standard in this country, and, and it's the one that the Canadians seem to be using, and that is precaution first, not yes. prove it. Proceed with precaution. Don't make the burden on me to come and show you that it's killing everybody. I just recently interviewed a, a scientist out of the University of Louisville who said that he often thinks of a, uh, it was an old detective show. There was a lawyer who told his client, if you could plot a hundred ways that a crime could go wrong, and if you could predict 50 of them and avoid them, you would be an absolute genius, but you're not a genius. And it's, he said, it's the same thing that we do with science. If we could predict 
even half of the ways something could go wrong after we implement it, we'd be all geniuses yeah. and we're not all geniuses. No. Uh, so there's always negative externalities that that come with these things. But when we're talking about making change, what I love about your book is you do have very practical ways, and we won't get into all the examples, but you have practical ways where we can all implement this in our own garden, our own right. garden. And then we are actually being part of this greater change. If we all did this as home gardeners, as people who have any kind of land started to heal our own soil food web, man, would that be a huge change. Sure, sure. So I live in Anchorage, Alaska. I write, I write the only garden column here. So there's a limited amount of information in the newspaper. <laughs> we don't use chemicals in Anchorage, Alaska, for the most part. When you walk into the mill and feed store in Anchorage, Alaska, you find a couple of aisles of organic stuff. You find one small shelf of chemical stuff. So, yeah, it happens. And yeah. it should happen. You know, when, you, when you're walking around one of your friend's yards and you notice that there are no dandelions in the lawn or that it's complete monoculture green – Get off that lawn and have a little talk with your uh, with your friend. We need to and talk about fact, dandelions. <laughs> maybe you need to buy team with microbes and give them a copy. Yeah, dandelions. I was my beginnings in gardening was a dandelion fork. Here's eight acres. Go get them. I at age four could pull the uh, dandelion out of the ground faster than you could say Jiminy Cricket and continued to do so until I was about 50. Uh, <laughs> and then one day I woke up and I, and I said to myself, first of all, the chemicals are bad, so I can't use those. I can continue to do the physical stuff. And I went through different kinds of forks, wing weeder, you know, you name it. There are 50 different kinds of dandelion eradicator mechanical things out there. And then one day I just said to myself, why am I doing this? The war is over. We what a relief. Lost. The war is over. <laughs> we lost. And I wrote a column and it's and it just struck a bell. I know it struck a bell because people would talk about it. Basically, I said, you you think your weed and feed is working. Why are you putting it down every year? Because it's not working. <laughs> Because the dandelions keep coming back. So anyway, it, you know, if dandelions were different colors, and by that I, don't, I mean if there was an orange one, a red one, a blue one, pink one, people be growing them on purpose. Just because they're all yellow, you know, people go a little freaky. So it's time to declare the war over. We've lost it. There are there are ways to get rid of dandelions chemically by changing the chemistry of your lawn, which you can sure. do by adding adding mulches and different things. You can use physical means. You can make your lawn much thicker and deeper and better by using the soil food web to help get rid of the, the dandelions. Or you can just mow the lawn because when you mow the lawn, it's green. And the fact that it's got clover, dandelions, personally, the things that are in it are all helping the soil food web be varied and diverse and keep things healthy because we haven't talked about that part of the soil food web when you've got a good one and right. it's in check it keeps numbers of the bad guys in check when you put down that chemical fertilizer that feeds you know the bluetooth alligator microbe to the point where that it multiplies so that the chicken microbes are only very few those chicken microbes are going to get eaten by the big crocodile it's feeding the good and the bad well, you end up you end up 
with the bad guys taking out the good guys. It's not just soil food web in the soil. That plant grows up through that soil. The larva in that soil becomes the insects that take the leaves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when you have a healthy soil food web, you keep populations in check, populations in check, leave the plant alone. Wow. Populations out of check have to take advantage of something or they themselves will be advantaged. Almost seems too good to be true when I hear people talk about these realities of the soil food web and what a huge impact it has because it is the foundation. So changes made there skein out and affect everything else about the environment. So it is really this one, probably the most important piece of information we can have is how to Absolutely. build healthy no soil. I'm <laughs> learning so much. I definitely encourage people to get these books. The information is all there. It's all incredibly approachable. Like I said at the beginning, I use them as reference works. If I have questions about a certain thing, they're very easy to thumb through and go pick out and read the area that you, that you need a refresher on. Hey, but, you know, I, I, I use them as references myself. I, you know, I had to go print out a list of the essential nutrients today, <laughs> just in, case, in case you were going to ask me. No, right. I'm look at the book. That's why it's there, right? That's why you have the book, is you don't need That's to right. carry it all around in the computer in our head. We can have that external reference. Before you leave us, I was really curious to hear about your program, because you called it the most important work you do, about Plant a Row for the Hungry. Tell us a little bit about it and how people could support sure. that. Sure. Plant a Row for the Hungry was a program that started as a result of a trip I took to Washington, D.C. as part of my other life. I was a lawyer doing some stuff, uh, and I happened to get stuck in D.C. in the coldest week they've ever had. And there are signs all over Washington, D.C. that say, don't feed the panhandlers. We'll take care of them. If you do, it messes our system up. Okay. Well, it, long story short, it was an incredibly cold day, and a guy followed me and wanted money, and I wouldn't give it to him because I kept seeing these signs. And, oh, God, I went back uh, to my warm hotel or my you know bottle of wine that the hotel left in the room and a box of candies and all my fruit and thinking what a terrible guy I was, tried to find the guy, couldn't, flew back to Anchorage, and I was flying back from Washington to Anchorage, eating in, you know, first-class meal, thinking again about this, how I stiffed this fellow human being on a, I mean, whoa, God, I was awful. It occurred to me, I remember the joke about zucchini. The joke is, of course, you never leave your car on the street, unlocked in Wisconsin in the summertime. Because if you do, somebody fills it up with their extra zucchini. Because <laughs> there's so much zucchini. Gardeners have so much waste. And it occurred to me as I was eating this zucchini steak meal that, gee, gardeners always have wasted food. Yeah. Maybe I could massage my terrible thing I did by getting my readers to, to give food to the food bank in Anchorage, the soup kitchen. And so I started a program called Plant a Row for Beans, Beans Cafe, our food cafe up here. Mm. And it was a big, big success. Gardeners share. That's what we do. And so the garden writers came up to Alaska, saw the program. We adopted it as a national program. It has continued to this day. It's a self-regulating program. Uh, the concept is that you as an individual dedicate a row in your garden to feed the hungry. You as the grower Take that food to somebody that needs it, whether it's a church, a synagogue, a next door neighbor, a food bank, whatever it be. 
You yeah. take that food. You're responsible for it. No money. Nothing drips between the lip and the cup. So it all goes to feeding the hungry. Well, there are botanical gardens that have plantar row uh, gardens. There are food banks that have their own plantar row gardens. Individuals, thousands around the country, offices of Fish and Wildlife Service in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, at lunch hour, that people will go out and take care of the plantar row garden. And now, during this particular time, without dating this particular podcast here, there is a need for food like no one's business. Don't right. leave it to the moose, to the deer. Don't leave it to rot over the wintertime and dedicate yourself to gaining one row, just one row. A pound of food makes four meals. Take it to somebody that needs it. That's plan a row for the hungry. Park. Really easy. No instructions other than that. You know, we've got programs that people started in prisons, as I said, in offices. You name it. We have them in Canada, Mexico. There's a special Canadian program, actually, because it's bilingual. Yeah. Australia, England. What a really cool idea. And it shows that power of just human beings, decentralized, doing the right thing. You gave people a locus or a focal point to direct that energy. What a beautiful thing. And is there a website anywhere we can go to learn more and start a program near us or just get it started? You know what you need to know. Get it started. <laughs> Plan a row and give it to people yeah, who no, need there it. Is a website. There is a website. The Garden Writers of America changed their name to Garden Communicators International. Fantastic. Yeah. So if you do Garden Communicators, Plant a Row, P-A-R, you'll end up with a page and it'll give you all the information you need, a logo you can use, publicity, all sorts of stuff. Again, a, a wonderful program. And I still wake up. In the middle of the night, every now and then, I see that guy in Washington, D.C., and mm. if he's listening, I apologize. This is my wow. way of trying to make it up to you. Something good comes from anything bad, and certainly I did something very bad. Let's make it good. Well, we've all been there, so we all have some impetus to try to do the right thing now and and do the plant a row for the hungry. I fully support that. I love that idea. And then where can people find you? Where can people find more about your work? Where can people find your article? Because I'm sure people listening are want to know more sure. about everything we've sure. discussed and your new uh, religion that's coming down the pike here. Sure. Uh, <laughs> let's see. I have a yeah, I have a weekly garden column. I still write in the Anchorage Daily News every Friday at www.adn.com. I have websites that sometimes... Sometimes I go to and sometimes I don't. Right. And you can send me an email at Jeff at Gardener, G-A-R-D-E-N-E-R dot -E -E com. And it's in all three books. So take a look at the appendix after you buy the books. And my publisher will be most pleased because I can assure <laughs> you that's where the money goes. <laughs> very good. Very good. Well, uh, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on and breaking down all these topics. I'll have you leave us with just a couple of questions I like to ask all my guests. And sure. I have a feeling you have some great answers for them. I have to know, what is a mushroom that you love and why? And we could say fungi in case you want to, you know, sure. talk no, about no, an endomycorrhizal. But what is, a, what is a mushroom you love and why? I love morels. Taste beyond delicious. Uh, they are incredibly easy to identify. And I've got some right here on my property. So... Whew, and I love them. Can't wait till the last week in May 
here in Anchorage, Alaska. Did I mention that I had some on my property? I better not catch anybody looking for my <laughs> secret morel patch. <laughs> that is top secret. No one can get to that one. That is a blessing indeed. And then we've hinted at the edges of this, but what has this relationship you've developed with fungi given to you and brought to your life? Perspective, spirituality, whatever it is, what has that relationship given to you? Well, it certainly emphasizes what we were all told, that we're just a teeny, teeny, teeny little cog. The idea that a fungus could control us is not a foreign thought to me. Uh, right. The idea that uh, when I touch a tree, that one cell I'm touching is connected to every cell in that tree. The whole tree knows I'm there. Wow. When I when I connect the two together, I recognize that that tree that we always thought was this thing that couldn't run away and was stupid and had no brain is connected to this fungal network in the same way that that fungal network is connected to us and we're connected. And I go crazy. (laughs) Question even. I mean, it's just, it's all so beautiful. It all fits together so nicely. Yeah. Uh, I think for everyone, it can kind of challenge our rather egoic human hierarchy that we put in place when you start realizing all the other amazing organisms and what they're doing. Absolutely. And then finally, what is the lasting impact that you hope to make with your work? Obviously, your work is diverse and uh, very powerful, but what's the lasting impact you hope to have with your books and with the uh, PAR program, all of it? Well, we have a problem in this country that we created with chemicals, not this country, this world, that we created with chemicals. We've got to reduce these chemicals. We know that the soil food web is a way to do it. And we just have to do it for humankind. In the same way, we've got to make sure that nobody goes to bed hungry. It's humankind. If we want to survive, it's the only way we can do it. Simple, intuitively, we all know it. So let's get going. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much of this information. I knew you'd be funny. You have an amazing personality. It was just a joy to get to speak with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. We'll do it again sometime. 